Well, good morning again to all of you, and welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It's a joyous thing always to gather together to worship God with God's people, right? to hear fellow believers, hear fellow Christians sing praises to our God, because it is a testimony of the power of the gospel to bring people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue together, though we were once separated, God. And this morning, we wrap up our series in the one another's, a series that was chosen in order to help us as a church to understand God's call for every Christian as we live life together. And as we've gone through the one another's, I hope that it's been a helpful uh, time for you guys in reminding us of all that God has done, right, and his high calling for us. It's been helpful for me just to even see how high of a standard God has for us because, well, we often make excuses for ourselves, right? And so it's been really encouraging just to see and challenging to see how God right, holds us to a very high calling, a very high standard because of his holiness and yet he is the one who gives us all the grace that we need to get us there, right? All the grace that we need to be the people that he has saved us to be. The final one another that we will study together this morning is one that focuses on fellowship. So we're going to draw the principle of fellowship out from this passage. Our fellowship with one another is not an end in and of itself, it is connected, big picture, to our fellowship with God. And so, the genuineness of our fellowship with one another has a direct link to our fellowship with God himself. So if you have your Bibles with me, uh, with you, please turn your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. If you need a Bible, we do have some Bibles in the back that you can that you can take home. Uh, we, we can direct you to that if you need a Bible. And um, also, if you'd like a handout to follow tonight, uh, to this afternoon's uh, sermon, you can find it on our bulletin. So let's read our passage together. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. The Apostle John writes this. And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we recognize that this passage is one that may be familiar to us, but it is still an important passage for us to consider because it reminds us, Lord, of the importance of our relationship with you and what that ought to look like, because it does influence our relationship with one another. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to receive your word this morning for what it is, your word. 
And that even if it is familiar to us, that we would still be willing to hear from it, be willing to listen to it, and strive to apply it to our lives. So that, Lord, you may receive all the glory and honor that you are due in our worship. And so we're grateful, Father, for your word. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word. Give me clarity in mind and speech so that I may faithfully proclaim your word and your word alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, when you guys think of the word fellowship, right, it's one that is not unfamiliar to us. It's pretty familiar to us. Right? For those of you who are aware of the, uh, the Lord of the Rings franchise, right, you guys know of the fellowship of the ring, right? the gathering of these people to do something with a ring somewhere, someplace. You know, you know the story, so that's why I'm saying that right away. We also have other fellowships, too, right, in our professions. We have medical, uh, med- medical fellowships, right, where a group of medical professionals gather together to, well, supposedly be together to do something, right? And now when it comes to the church, we also have a fellowship, a group of people gathered together to go do something. But what is that something? Or right, what is that something? You see, for those of us who have that church background, fellowship is the word that we use to describe our gatherings, right? whether it be on Wednesday, Friday, whatever day of the week it is, right? it's, it's used to describe our gathering together. But the question is, when we gather together, do we actually have fellowship or do we have something else? Because when we gather together for fellowship, We're aiming for something more, for something bigger than just our enjoyment. The goal of our fellowship should not simply be that we just enjoy one another's company, although that is a good thing, right? But that we also help each other love Jesus more. That's the goal of our fellowship. When we gather together, it's not just to do stuff, but it's to love Jesus more to help each other love Jesus more, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And this relationship of encouragement to become more like Jesus ultimately stems from a right relationship with God the Father. Or if you want to put it in other words, a right fellowship with God the Father. Because a right fellowship with God the Father will, in theory, lead to right fellowship with one another. But how, right, how do we know whether our fellowship with God and with one another is a genuine fellowship? Well, in our text this morning, we're going to observe three claims that help us evaluate the genuineness of our fellowship with God and with one another. So three claims that help us evaluate the genuineness of our fellowship with God and with one another. And these claims are the claim to have fellowship with God, the claim that we have no sin, and the claim that we have not sinned. Well, the first claim that we're going to evaluate, or that's going to help us evaluate our fellowship with God and others, is the claim to have fellowship with God. Verses 5 through 7. In the book of 1 John, the Apostle John's purpose in writing this whole letter is stated in 1 John 5.13, where John explains that he wrote this letter to help believers have assurance of salvation. 
that they would know for certain that they have eternal life. And they needed this assurance, they needed this comfort, because false teachers had arisen among, among them. And they were teaching false doctrines that caused many in the church to wonder whether what they heard in church was true. And so John wrote to provide comfort and to provide assurance of salvation as he dealt with the false claims of these false teachers. So, verse 5, we see what the message is first. And he writes this, And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So John wants his readers to know, first and foremost, that the message that he and his preacher team are delivering is the message that comes from God himself. The message is, sorry, that he and his team are giving are from God himself. Now, false teachers could also say the same thing, right? We are from God. Our message is from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. They could say that too. And so... How do we know it's distinguished from what the false teachers might say and what John is saying? Well, John's writing itself will distinguish itself. In proclaiming what God has revealed to his people in previous scriptures. It'll be consistent all the way through with what God has, has previously revealed. Now, what are... One of the, what are some of those things, right, some of those truths that God has previously revealed about himself? Well, it's that he is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Now, the description of God being light is not one that we would commonly think of when we, when we think about the attributes of God. But it's a critical one nonetheless because it points to God's absolute holiness. But it doesn't just refer to God's absolute holiness. It also relates big picture to God's glory. Right, to God's glory. As you may remember from Hebrews 1.3, the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God the Father's nature. The language of radiance normally brings forth this imagery of light. It reminds us that Jesus Christ comes from the Father. He comes from the Father. The idea that Christ is the exact representation of God's nature helps us see that he is not just a mirror image of God. He is the exact same. He has the exact same image, the exact same nature. Jesus Christ and God the Father are one in the same when it comes to their nature. And when you look in the mirror, you see an image of yourself, but that's not you. Right? Hopefully, the image that you see in the mirror does not have thoughts, feelings, or smells. That would be weird. That would be strange. Right? That might be a problem. It doesn't, right? because it's not us. It's an image of us, but it is not us. And yet, Christ, he is the exact representation of God's nature. He is God himself. Right? That's why he's not a mirror image of God. He is the exact representation of God. God, right? He proceeds from the Father. That's the imagery of radiance. Now, how does this relate back to 1 John? Well, when we think about God being light, 
We think about God as being perfectly holy and perfectly glorious because, well, he is holy. He is perfect. In other words, he is absolutely righteous. He is absolutely just. He is perfect in all of his perfections. And as a result, anything that is imperfect, anything that is not light, has no part in him. Because there is no darkness in him at all. And this is critical because of the claim that is being made by these false teachers in verse 6. Because they say that they have fellowship with God, and yet they walk in darkness. And so John says, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. Another way to think about this is the false teachers claim that they have fellowship with God. And yet what we see in their life, it doesn't match up with their profession. Right? What we see is that their life does not match up with their profession. Now you might be saying, that's pretty harsh. Right? Who are you to judge these people? Right? Who are we to judge anybody's salvation? And that question is partially right. In the sense that I am not the sole determiner of whether someone is saved or not. You all are not the determiner of whether someone is saved or not. Right? But who is? God is. Right? God is the one who is able to determine whether someone is saved or not. He is the one who is able to examine the heart and see what is really in our hearts. And so, if our life does not match our profession, there usually is a pretty good relationship as to whether we actually know God or not. Right? And so, these people who walk in darkness, right? this metaphor of walk is, is this idea of living a lifestyle of darkness, living a lifestyle of sin. If they live a lifestyle of sin, yet claim fellowship with God, they actually can't. Right? Why? Because he is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. You see, when Christians are saved by grace, God the Father unites us together with Christ. We become one in him. And it is for this reason in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, we see language that tells us of this unity. Right? We were all dead in our transgressions. Each and every single one of us were spiritually dead and separated from God the Father. We were on our own. But God. But God, in salvation, made us alive together in Christ. Right? With Christ. You see that in your, in your Bibles, right? We're alive together with Christ. Not only that, but you look at verse 6. We are raised up together with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so you see, unity with Christ, it's a real reality that reflects the fact that everything that we are as Christians is wrapped up and summed up in him. Right? Everything that we are is wrapped up and summed up in Jesus. And so when we talk about being in Christ, Together as a church, right, that isn't just fancy language. Right, when we talk about being one body, 
That's not just some imagery that we can take or leave. It actually means something. Right? Being in Christ means something. It reflects the fact that we really are, though we, be, we are individuals, one in Jesus. And that oneness is a critical factor because when we're one with him, that's when we're able to be one with God. Right? That's when we're able to have fellowship with God. And this is the problem that we see in verse 6, going back to 1 John 1. How can it be that those who walk in darkness have fellowship with God? Or how can they say that they have fellowship with God, but they live their lives however they please? It just does not work. It's not compatible. Or the idea of, of walking in darkness, right, that living a sinful lifestyle, that is incompatible with being a Christian. If we live a worldly lifestyle, we're driven by the world's goals and the world's desires, right? that's incompatible with being a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. We will still struggle with sin in this life. Right? We will. That's just a fact of life. But what we see in the scriptures is that our sin should not characterize us. It should not control us. Right? The, first people, the first thing that people think of when they see us and they think of us should not be that we live like, look like, think like, act like everybody else. We should not live like other sinful people. And Paul makes this really clear for us in Romans 6, 12 through 14. As you look at those verses... What we see is that the issue in terms of living a life that pleases God is not being absolutely perfect. God knows that we can't on our own be absolutely perfect in this life. He will make us perfect like Christ in the end. But the main issue in living a life that pleases God is not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not be our master. If you are a Christian here this morning... Yes, you will still struggle with sin occasionally, but sin shall not be master over you. It should not be master over you. If when you are tempted, you you give yourself over to sin every single time, this is where you begin to evaluate and check yourself and wonder, is my profession real? Is my profession of faith, my profession of fellowship with God, is it real? Because it seems as if every single time I'm tempted, sin wins all the time. Now, I'm not saying that you, uh, that you definitely are not saved, but what we see in the scriptures is that for those who are saved, right, sin is not master over us. It does not rule and reign over us. Because what we see, going back to 1 John 1, 6, is that if we say that we have fellowship with God, and yet we walk in darkness, we live in our sin, we don't care about our sin, we just continue to excuse it, right, then we're not saved. That's what it says, right? We lie, and we do not do the truth. 
We can't have fellowship with God because it's not existent. We've not been saved from our sins because we're still in them. We don't practice the truth. We practice what appears maybe to be the truth, but in reality, we don't practice it at all. We do not have a lifestyle of righteousness. We have a lifestyle of sin. Now, that sounds bad, but look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So just to recap, if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we're still walking in our sinful lifestyle, we're liars, and we don't have the truth. We don't do the truth. However, if we say that we have fellowship with God and we are walking in the light, right? we are striving to live holy and righteously before God, then we have fellowship with God the Father and we have fellowship with one another. And, bonus, extra, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. Or how much is all? It's all. right? Not just the big ones. Not just the little ones that are super easy. All of them. All of our sins are washed away. They're cleansed. And this is significant because the only reason why any of us can have any sort of meaningful relationship and fellowship with one another is because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. In saving us from our sins, he unites everyone who has been saved together in himself. We saw that earlier in Ephesians 2. If we have not truly been saved and forgiven of our sins, then the old divisions of sin, they continue to keep us apart. We continue to have no meaningful form of unity or fellowship. But in salvation, we have the basis of our fellowship with one another because we have been united as one new man in Christ. In salvation, Christ redefines humanity. Because before Christ, who represented us? It was Adam, right? Adam represented all of mankind. And in Adam's singular sin, in Adam's singular sin, sin nature was passed down to everyone. Everyone who was born inherited a sin nature because of Adam, because he was our corporate head, because he represented all of us to God. And so all of us have a sin nature. But now, in Christ, the perfect man, the new Adam, who lived a perfect life, who was Adam who was the Adam that Adam should have always been in his perfect life and in his death and in his his resurrection, he creates a new humanity that we are all a part of. You want to study a little bit more about that? You can look at Romans 5. This idea of a new humanity in Christ, it means the world. To us as Christians. It is everything to us as Christians. That's why I'm able to call those of you who are believers brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not some cult thing where, oh, you're my brother and you're my sister because we're all people in this world. 
We're all children of the world. Right? It's not some mystical thing like that. It's an actual spiritual reality. There is a new humanity in Jesus Christ. If you want to think about it this way, think back to Genesis 3. Back in the garden. As we see the gospel set up, right, we have the seed of the serpent set up against the seed of who? seed of man, right? Or the seed of the woman, who is ultimately God's people, right? Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. You see the difference, right? You see the difference. There is a new humanity because of Christ. There is a new humanity. One that is no longer defined by and enslaved to sin. And so the important thing to recognize here is that true fellowship, a fellowship that provides true unity among believers, or not one where we just sing around a campfire, link arms and sing kubaya, but true unity, and it allows for us to take part of the benefits of life together. It's a reality because of Jesus' blood shed on the cross for us. It cleanses us from all sin so that we can live and walk in the light so that we can live and walk in Christ, so that we have newness of life. Not maybe, not probably, but for sure. Isn't that cool? That we have new life in Christ. That you don't have to live in your sin anymore. That the things that divide us and separate us, they don't need to divide us and separate us anymore. Because all that matters to a church that loves God is God. And striving together to encourage one another to love him and to do that together. We can truly have that fellowship with God and each other. However, if we claim that we have fellowship with God, but we're still in our sins, we don't care about our sins, then we don't have fellowship with him. And we likewise don't have fellowship with each other. So there's two competing thoughts that are up there. And we have to figure out as we're evaluating this claim. Do I have genuine fellowship with God and therefore genuine fellowship with everyone else who is a believer, or do I not? There's another claim that helps us evaluate this even further. It's the claim that we have no sin. The claim that we have no sin. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this claim that the false teachers made of not being guilty of committing sin is the height of pride because it doesn't agree with the clear teaching of Scripture. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, you guys remember this one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul also says previously in Romans 3.10, quoting uh, Psalm 14, that there is none righteous, not even one. If there was a possibility for believers to never sin again after salvation, we got to think about it. Why is it that Paul and the other divinely inspired New Testament authors had to write in their books to rebuke and correct believers for their wrong belief about how to live life or their wrong beliefs about God? Claiming to be without sin really is the height of arrogance because it forgets that each and every one of us were born with a sin nature. 
Now, the blood of Christ does cleanse us from all sin in the sense that all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ. But it doesn't mean that we are all now, at this very moment, perfect and are just like Jesus as we should be. Paul writes in Galatians 5, verses 17 through 18, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Notice who Paul is talking to. He's talking to people who have the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's talking to Christians. And what Paul wants the people to recognize is that there is currently an ongoing battle between the flesh and the spirit here in this life. Only in the resurrection will the process of becoming like Christ be complete. And so, if I can help you understand this a little bit better, maybe I'll muddy it up, but hopefully it's clear. We have, in our legal position, been given the righteousness of Christ, right? God declares us righteous. When he sees us, he sees Jesus's righteousness instead of what we've done, right? He gives us Christ's righteousness, right? He declares that we are innocent, right? Not just not guilty, but innocent, completely innocent of sin because of Christ's innocence, So when he looks at us, he sees us in that way. So that if you and I, within the next 15 minutes, keel over and die, we will go to heaven. Because our life is seen as righteous, right? God has declared us righteous. He has given us the righteousness of Christ. We're not perfect right now, right? In the next 15 minutes, you and I are not going to achieve perfection, We are in agreement with that, right? Yes? Yes. Okay, good. But it's because God declares us righteous that we would be able to if we were all to die. We're not perfect yet, and God is in the process of making us more like Jesus throughout our lives. We will get there. We will get there. And that is really what the rest of the Christian life is all about. Slowly but surely becoming transformed into the image of Christ. Becoming more like Jesus. So that when we do die, whenever the Lord allows that to happen, it's not something that we are all saddened by, but it's something that we rejoice in because we will finally be as we always should have been. And we'll be at that point glorified, made just like Jesus Christ. This is what God is doing in salvation. We're justified, we're sanctified, right? That word of becoming more like Jesus Christ, and then ultimately becoming like Jesus Christ, being glorified. This is what God is doing in salvation. This is what God is doing in salvation. None of us can look at our lives right now and say, at least without being deceived, that we are exactly as God wants us to be in this moment, that we are the men and women that God wants us to be right here, right now, that we're perfect, right? We can't say that. We still wrestle with our sin nature. And this is where the good news of verse 9 comes in. 
John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, this confession of sins is a counter to the claim that the false teachers have of we have no sin. We do have sin. We acknowledge that we have sin, and we will still wrestle with it occasionally in our lives. But when we confess our sins to God, first in salvation and then afterwards in a continual recognition that we struggle, we can have full assurance, full confidence that our sins are forgiven. Why? Because first, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. The faithfulness of God To forgive us our sins is a wonderful reminder that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. In Jeremiah 31, 34, this is just one example. Look at the promise that God makes to his people at the end of the verse. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. When God does it, or when God says it, he does it. There are no unfinished projects with God. God makes the promise. He will fulfill it. He absolutely will forgive us of all our sins. It's not a probably, right? It's not he will probably forgive us our sins. Or maybe he'll forgive us our sins if we live a life that is good enough. It is definite. It is for sure. You can take it to the bank. God will be faithful to forgive us of all of our sins. He will forgive. Now, what does it mean for God to be righteous in the forgiving of our sins? It means that God will forgive our sins in the right way, in a righteous way. God does not take shortcuts. He will not forgive our sins unrighteously so that it invalidates our forgiveness. He does it in the right way. How so? Well, remember Romans 6.23? The only way that sin is paid for is through death. It's through death. Right? Each person is accountable to God for their own sins. That's why all die. And in the Old Testament, the forgiveness of sins was paid for through the sacrifices that God gave his people to temporarily cover sin. But that's why they also had to continue to offer sacrifices to cover their sin. Yes, they were saved by faith, right? But the forgiveness of their sins was a temporary, off, was a temporary covering made possible by offering. In the New Testament... Sin was paid once for all when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in our place. He had no sins to pay for for himself. Right? That's why it was necessary that he be perfect, that he live a righteous life. Because if he had to pay for his own sins, then he, was not quali- he would not be qualified to pay for ours. But he had no sin. Right? And which is why when he died on the cross he was able to take on all of our sins, right? He becomes that new corporate head. He becomes that new representative of all of us. And in so doing, he takes all of our sins upon himself. And when he died, all of our sins were paid for. When he rose from the dead, that gave us all access to eternal life, to newness of life. So he had to die. 
he had to have a real physical body. He had to live a real sinless life. And he had to die a real death. Right? He had to. Some people might say, I mean, God's all-powerful, right? And so if God's all-powerful, why did anyone have to die for sin? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you of all of your sins, and then, bing, we're all saved, we're all forgiven. Why couldn't God do that? Right? If he's so strong and mighty, why couldn't he do that? Because if he were to do that, would sin have been dealt with at all? Right, think about that. If God just waved his magic wand and said, you're all forgiven of your sins, would our sins actually be dealt with or do they still remain? They still remain, right? They still remain because that sin would go unpunished. It's the equivalent of telling your child to clean their room and they shove everything under the bed. Did they actually clean their room? Technically, yes. But when you examine the work, did they really? No. Right? Absolutely not. So if God were just to say, you're all forgiven, but no one paid for those sins, right? no one's forgiven because no justice has been done. And worse yet, if God does not justly deal with sin in our forgiveness, then he becomes what? unjust. He becomes unjust. And that's a problem for us because in 1 John 1, 5, we're told that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So God cannot be unjust. Jesus had to die. And so thankfully, God is righteous to forgive sin. He didn't use a loophole. He didn't create one. The legal requirement of death was met by Christ. Christ died to pay the penalty for sin. God then raised him up from the dead so that Jesus wouldn't be just like everyone else who died. If Jesus was just like everyone else, that's no hope for you and me. That's not good news for you and me. Because if Jesus died and stayed dead, what makes him different than any other man or any other woman who has died in history? Nothing. Nothing. And so he had to be raised from the dead so that all of us who believe in him and leave our sins behind can have that forgiveness of sin. So we have that newness of life. So that the power of sin over us is broken. So that sin and death are no more. So God, he dealt with sin in a righteous way in a righteous way. And so, as a form of recap, we are encouraged and comforted when we confess our sins because God is faithful to keep his promise to forgive us our sins. And he righteously forgives us of our sins. That's how we know we can have confidence because God dealt with it the right way. Because God is still God in how he deals with our salvation, right? And how he accomplished salvation for us. He forgives us of all of our sins. He cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness, which means that we are completely clean. No more stain. No more spots. Are you guys have cleaned stains before that? Uh, you have to clean messes before that have less stains, right? It's really hard to get out, especially if you have white clothing, right? 
You have those stains that are in there. They're deep set in. You're trying to get them out. Even OxyClean can't get it out. And you're like, man, what, what, what's it going to take? There is no frustration. There is no leftover stains with God. When he cleanses, when he, for, when, when he, for, when he cleanses of all unrighteousness, we are completely clean, completely white as snow. Right? Praise God for that, right? There is no more stain of sin upon us. You can't even see it. You don't even know where it was. It's gone. But if we find ourselves in a position where we say that we have no sin in us, then we've deceived ourselves. Because that stands contrary to what the scriptures have said. Our opinions of ourselves and where we stand before God, it is wrong. Right? There is such thing as wrong answers because it's contrary to what God has said about us. And so if we are deceived about our sin, then we actually prove that we do not have fellowship with God. Or if we say, I don't sin anymore, I have no sin in my life anymore, right? because I've been forgiven, I don't sin. I just make mistakes. I just make errors, but I don't sin anymore because I've, I'm righteous now. Right? That's wrong. That's wrong. That's the error of perfectionism. None of us can be perfectly sinless in this life now. Right? There are people out there who claim that all they do now that they've been saved is just mistakes. But that's not what the scripture says. It's they, the scriptures still call it sin. So if we're deceived about that, then we don't have fellowship with God. We don't have fellowship with one another. Right? When we gather together to worship and to hang out with other people, it's what it, that's all it is. It's just a hangout. It's just a social club. It's just a gathering of friends. It's not fellowship. Now, there is a third claim that helps us evaluate the genuineness of our fellowship with God and with others, and that is the claim that we have not sinned. The claim that we have not sinned. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, verse 10, it sounds pretty similar to verse 8, right? It sounds pretty similar. Now, some commentators have understood verse 8 as being one group of false teachers and verse 10 being another group of false teachers, both making different claims. One saying that they don't have sin, um, that that they don't sin anymore, and the other saying that they've never sinned. Now, that could possibly be the case, but it is also more possible that what John is doing, he's, is he's restating the claim of the false teachers in just a different way to make a different point. Now, I'm not going to die on that hill, and neither should you, because we don't have any evidence here saying there were definitely two groups of, of false teachers making different claims. Right? So we don't have to make that distinction necessarily. Right? It could be the same false teachers, and it's just uh, their error being dealt with in a different way. But in either case, right, what's the, what's the big point? What's the big picture point? What's the main thing that we ought to take away here? The main thing that we ought to take away here is that it's, regardless of whether we're saying we don't sin anymore or that we've never sinned, it's unbiblical to say that. Right? It is wrong for us, it is error for us to say that we no longer sin or that we have no sin or we've never sinned. Because outside of Jesus, there is no such thing as a person who has no sin or has never sinned. So what's the difference then between verses 8 and 10? In verse 8, the person who makes a claim 
to sinlessness was described by John as someone who deceived themselves. Right? They deceive themselves and they do not have the truth in them. However, in verse 10, we see something even more devastating um, in terms of a claim to be sinless. Because in claiming to be sinless, those who make such claims make God out to be a liar. I don't know about you, but I don't think we want to go around calling God a liar, do we? He's perfect in all of his ways. He is light. He is righteousness. There is no darkness in him at all. And so if we called God a liar, we expose ourselves, not him. And you know, this claim of being sinless, making God out to be a liar, it's also bad because... Well, there's an open disregard for what God has revealed in his word, right? We don't, we're, we're basically saying, no, God, no. I know better than you. You can't call me sinless. You don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know my life. You can't call me sinful. How dare you, God? How dare you call me sinful? That's what we're saying. We might not say it in those terms or with that tone, But that's what we're saying, and that's what we're doing. We are placing ourselves in judgment of God and in judgment of God's word. We're elevating ourselves to the position of God, and we're rejecting what God has to say about us. But not only that, not only that, at the end of verse 10, it says that those who claim to have never sinned prove that God's word is not in them. And that makes sense, right? Because if we don't even believe in God, and we don't even care what his word has to say about us, then why would we live by his word? Why would we seek to care about what his word has to say? Because there are some Christians out there today, this moment, probably even meeting right now, this very hour, who seek to take what they believe is the good of Christianity, and then they blend it together with their own sinful lifestyles. And they say, I love Jesus. I know Jesus. It's you who doesn't know Jesus. It's you who doesn't love Jesus. Because my Jesus, he would never judge me. My Jesus loves me just as I am. Is that true? Is that right? That can't be true. And that can't be right. Why? Again, not because I get to determine who's saved. Not because you all get to determine who is saved but it's because God gets to determine who is saved. Right? God gets to determine who is saved. Jesus himself says in John 8, 31 through 32, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What has been revealed in God's word is our ultimate source of truth. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is only one objective truth, and that is the truth of God. God alone has authority to say what is right and what is wrong. And while God may not have kept some of the Old Testament practices in the New Testament, God never reverses course and calls something that was sinful, righteous, and holy. He never calls evil good. And so, we can't do it either. We can't do it either. There is no such thing. There is no such thing 
as a Christian who is defined by their sin. There's no such thing as a, there should be no such thing as a prideful Christian, as an angry Christian, as a wrathful Christian. If you want to talk about the issue of our day, there is no such thing as a homosexual Christian. There is no such thing as a transgender Christian. There is no such thing because God does not condone sin. He does not give approval to sin. If he did, what's the problem? He goes up against himself. He calls evil good. And that would be a problem because in him there is no darkness at all. Right? There is no darkness in him at all. You can say... You cross the line. That's super judgy. That's wrong for you to say. You cannot say that we can't be in our sins, that we can't love Jesus and remain in our sins. Because right? he doesn't even call it sin. He doesn't judge me for this. Right? You can say that, but you'd still be wrong. Right? Not because I'm being prideful. Because God does not condone it. Right? His word does not condone it. We cannot stand in judgment of God's word. We cannot call what is evil good. If we claim to have genuine fellowship with God and with others, then we have to take sin seriously. I claim to say that we've not sinned when we're living in sin is in fact sin. It is sin. As we look back at these six verses that we've studied this morning, it can be really easy for us just to look at the warning aspects of it and think, man, this is super discouraging. Right? This is really discouraging. And all we've talked about this morning is the fact that people aren't saved. And that's true in part. But this brings us some sobriety, does it not? It brings us some sobriety because it helps us see that God... His ways are indeed higher than our ways. And we can't turn around and say, God, you can't say that. God, you can't do that. We have to abide by His will, His word. And even though there's the sobriety of knowing that we may not be in genuine fellowship with Him and that we might be in line for judgment, there is some encouragement as well. Right? We may not necessarily follow God exactly as we should, right? because, well, we're still sinless. I mean, we're still sinful, sorry. We're not sinless. But because of Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, we are able to have that confidence that all our sins are paid for. And when we confess our sins, he forgives us completely. He's faithful. He is righteous to forgive us of all of it. We don't have that. You know, I'm imagining that most of you won't say, I'm sinless. I don't sin anymore. But when we do recognize our sin, we do recognize, wow, we have a good God who does forgive us of our sins when we do mess up. Right? 
even though we may have moments or even seasons of struggle, we are encouraged by the fact that God himself is the one who enables us to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We therefore can have fellowship with him and one another that goes beyond just hanging out that goes beyond pursuing similar hobbies together, that goes beyond eating good food, but a fellowship that helps us through those times of struggle against sin. If this genuineness of fellowship is truly ours, then, brothers and sisters, pursue each other and pursue God together. Genuine Christians need fellowship. Genuine Christians need fellowship. It's not just about you and your relationship with Jesus and that's all that matters, right? It's not just about you and your salvation. More often than not, in Christianity today, that's all we really think about, right? That's the only thing that matters is just me and Jesus. I don't care what you think. I don't care what other people think. All that matters is what is between me and Jesus. That's not true. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who can do it on their own. And you can, you can say, like, oh, I'm not doing it on my own. I have Jesus. Again, that's not the point, right? We are described as a body for a reason because God, in his grace, gives us the church as one of the provisions to make us more like Jesus, right? He gives us his word, he gives us prayer, and he gives us fellowship. That's how we become more like Jesus, right? Because when you fall down, sometimes you can pick yourself up, but sometimes you can't too, right? Sometimes you need some help. Sometimes we can't even see our sin. We're operating one way, and we think we're going fine, and then someone comes up to us and says, hey, you know, when you were interacting with that person over there, you you were a little impatient. Did you realize that? Did you realize that you were really rough with them? You treated them rudely? And he's like, I did? I had no idea. That wasn't my intention at all. Oh, I'm sorry. All right, we need some people to tell us right, when we've sinned. Because sometimes we're not even aware of it. right? Because in our own eyes, more often than not, we're fine. Right? I didn't murder anybody today. I didn't steal from anybody today. Well, this is my Netflix password. That's a whole other thing. I didn't do these big sins, so I'm good. But are we good in front of God? Are we good in front of God? We need each other. We need help to pursue Christ-likeness together. We can't do this on our own. That's why we have fellowship. That's why we gather together to sing, to proclaim these truths to one another. That's why we gather together to hear the word preached, so that together we can hear it and we can talk about it as we... we, uh, as we fellowship with one another, and we can teach each other what we've learned and can see different ways that we can apply the truth to our lives. Right? No Christian can truly grow apart from the rest of the body. Right? So don't just settle in and think that you're good, just you and Jesus. Right? You need the body as well. Don't just be content with having four or five really close friends and say, this is our fellowship group. That's it. We don't need anybody else. And we need the whole body. Right? If it was just our four or five friends, we could just be like the hand and say, hey, we're the hand. We don't need anybody else. 
right? But that's not what we see in the Bible, right? When it comes to the whole body of Christ being together, right? The eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you because you're not an eye. You're an ear. Get out of here, ear, right? No, right? We all need each other. We all need each other. God, think about this. God has created us for more than that. He has created us for more than that. We have a whole body that we can depend on. So embrace the body. Embrace the body of Christ and grow together. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this message is both a message of warning and a message of hope to you. It is a message of warning in that it reminds us that unless we have forgiveness of sin, unless we leave that sin behind and believe upon Jesus Christ, we are, we are the just targets of God's justice. We owe that penalty to him. He is an infinitely holy God. Our sin, our rebellion is infinitely offensive to an infinitely holy God. We don't get annihilated when we die. Because if that was it, who cares? If that was it, there is nothing to be afraid of because God can only kill you once. And that would be all. But the infinite weight of our infinite offense against an infinitely holy God requires eternal separation from God, eternal judgment from God. And that's the bad news. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. God, because he loved you, sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. Not just the big ones, not just the small ones that are easy to clean, but all of them. So that in believing in him, in leaving your sins behind, you might have newness of life. You might have a relationship with him. That you might be adopted into your family so that even though you were once his enemy, you are now his adopted son or daughter. What kind of God does that? for his enemies, only ours. And so, whether you know that you're an unbeliever or you realize today that you've thought that just because you prayed a prayer, you walked down an aisle, you raised a hand, that you're saved, but your lifestyle doesn't prove it, this is the call for you to consider. Have you really believed upon the Lord? Have you really left your sins behind? Because if you've not, there's hope for you today. Again, you will struggle. I'm not saying that you won't ever struggle. You will. But there's hope for you today for forgiveness in Christ. That growth and change is possible because of God's grace. God paid the way for you to get adopted into his family, to get to to receive forgiveness of all sins. So will you, will you believe in him? Will you leave your sin behind today and be welcomed into his family? Well, before we close and invite our worship team to close us in a response song and even observe communion together,
here are some application questions for us to consider um, this afternoon or even later during this week. Application question number one, how can we more intentionally fellowship with other Christians during fellowship group meetings or church gatherings? Right? Not just hanging out. Right? We can do that too. But how can we be intentional in our fellowship? How can we encourage one another to love Christ more, to spur each other on to love and good deeds? It's Hebrews 10, if you weren't sure about that. Number two, do I treat sin as seriously as God treats it, or do I tend to make excuses for my sin? Do I treat sin as seriously as God treats it, or do I make excuses for it? Typically, we just relabel our sins. I wasn't angry with you. I was just frustrated with you. Right? We relabel it because we don't want to admit that we're sinful. Brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that what we just did was sin. Okay? So do we treat it as seriously as God treats it? Do we repent of it? Or do we just try and blame shift? The only reason why I was angry with you is because you did this to me, and you made me feel this certain way. That's blame shifting. That's saying, no, you're responsible, not me. I'm not responsible for what you've done to me. And that's not necessarily true, right? We, you can go back to some other messages to hear about that. So those are some application questions for us to consider uh, this morning. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today. We're grateful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness is cleansed and forgiven of us because of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the fact that though we are individuals, because of salvation, we are now one in Christ, and that is a wonderful and beautiful reality, that because we are one in him, We now have fellowship with you. We now have access to the Holy Spirit, all because of this unity that we have together. And so we're grateful, Father. We're so grateful for salvation because it allows us to be in relationship with you and each other. We pray that you would grow us in our love for you and each other as we continue on in our lives. And it's in your sense that we pray. Amen.